Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Thank you very much. I don't know what that last nothing? person says right there at the end. Somebody says something like in the crowd when that applause oh. is just ending. It sounds like all hail Radio Free Mormon to me. That, I think that's what it was. Okay. How, how are you doing tonight, RFM? I'm doing better than any podcaster has a right to be. I'll tell the audience a little secret. I call you RFM in every conversation the two of us have, every phone call every email, every text message, because I am so scared to death that I am going to name drop you on a regular basis that I have trained my brain to only refer to you as the person known as Radio Free Mormon. Wow, that's dedication. What I like best is when you say RFM in your sleep. I do sometimes. I, I wake up. It's usually a nightmare, but I wake <laughs> up and uh, my wife says, whoa, whoa, what was that about? It's like, settle down. You just said RFM. And I was like, cold sweats. And mm -hmm. talking about uh, talking about cold sweats, uh, we're going to be talking about the OG tonight, the original garments. Oh, OG. I get it. Yeah. Nothing but a G thing, baby. Where my, you know, I almost put my G's on. I was going to wear G's tonight, just in honor of, I've got one pair stored away in case there's ever like a garment party at an Exmo house or something. I'm ready to rock and roll. I thought for our sophisticated audience members, we could play air on a G string. Air on a G string. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Well, uh, any thoughts from me before we get kicked off to this episode? No, but I know that you have been burning the midnight oil. You have been working so hard. You <laughs> actually, not only just you researching this, you have a team of researchers out there running to various libraries, combing through the stacks. It has happened. We uh, we were looking for a specific story. We we got close enough to it that I think we'll share it tonight. But uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised myself. I think I've got a research team, unknown research team of about four or five people. Mormon, Mormon scholars on the inside and outside of the church, people inside the Strengthening Church Members Committee. Just folks helping me all over the place. Yes, we won't mention any of the names of the people in the SCMC, though. No, no, no. We won't. Or give out their phone number so that the audience could call them. Yes, except for Sergeant Carter and Private Pyle. <laughs> well, golly. Shazam. All right. So let's start off. First off, folks, I will say, uh, again, we mentioned this last week. Donations are down just a touch. If you would mind. Uh, if you can help us out, anybody who's not donating, if you are donating, we're super grateful to you. Uh, for those who have an inclination to help us out but just haven't done it yet, this would be the moment. If you'd go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button, uh, send us a few bucks. We love recurring donations, even something small like three or five bucks a month. It just helps us to, to keep kind of this all this work going. 11 podcasts at this point, 11 podcasters. Um, great content all around. All of them are getting um, high reviews and uh, 
We're just doing wonderful. And here at Mormonism Live, we are really trying to put a great show together. And I think that happens week in and week out. So uh, let's start off with garments. Garments is the topic. We thought we'd dive into the history and we found a lot of cool things. I wanted to start off with how garments came to be. And uh, maybe I'll turn a moment over to you right here at the beginning to talk to us about the idea of garments. It, it seems like that's not really in masonry. The idea of symbols and, you know, we'll get into cuts and things being uh, done to the material. But the actual idea of an undergarment being a religious piece of apparel, your thoughts on where the idea comes from? Well, yes, as far back as you can go in Genesis, having to do with garments is regarding Adam and Eve. They start off naked. Then maybe they go to a fig leaf. I don't know. But after they get cast out, they start wearing garments made of animal skins. And when I went to look for this, I had it in my mind that they made the garments out of the animal skins themselves. And I was surprised to find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, that it was actually God who made the garments for Adam and Eve out of animal skins. And I read to you, this is from the um, New Revised Standard Version. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. So he actually puts the garments on them. These are sacred in nature in some way. Heavenly Father came down from his throne and he helped them put their G's on. Well, yeah. And, you know, that kind of happens in the temple, too, in the initiatory, right? Yeah. Do you think they put their pants on one leg at a time that that day? Or do you think it was? I got it. I don't know how to respond to this. There's going to be more stuff that you're planning on putting on, which I do not support, that I don't know how I'm going to respond to. And you're just getting me started now. I've got a feeling those garments actually didn't have legs. That's just my guess. Yeah, probably not. So outside of that early history with the beginning of Genesis, according to two accounts, Eliza uh, Maria A. Munson, early pioneer history, and then also Heber C. Kimball's diary, um, Maven, if you've got the original temple garment design, it's kind of a really lazy image. It's it's probably something written on the back of a Kirtland Safety Society note or something. But um, if you've got that handy, I'll read this here as you're looking for that. The original temple garment was made of unbleached uh, muslin with markings bound in turkey red, fashioned by Nauvoo Seamstress. Uh, Elizabeth Warren Allred, uh, under Joseph Smith's direction, Joseph reported the intention uh, was to have a one-piece garment covering the arms, legs, and torso, having as few seams as possible. Ceremonial markings on the garment were originally snipped into the cloth in the temple during the initiate's first visit. And just a note here, um, this idea of a one-piece garment, was this you that was talking to me about this in terms of Jesus? Yeah, please go ahead and share a few thoughts on that. Well, it's interesting to me, this quote that you have uncovered about the design being preferred to be as near as one, with as few seams as possible is what it said, right, Bill? Yeah, it said a one-piece garment having a quote, as few seams as possible, Yes. Right. And what that harks back to me is, of course, to Jesus at his crucifixion when he had a garment, which was unusual in that it was one piece of cloth. Very unusual back in the day, cloth being something very expensive, difficult to come by. And generally garments, 
generally speaking, garments, things to wear, were stitched together out of different pieces of random cloth. But it was very difficult to have an entire garment made out of one solid piece with no seams in it. And that's, of course, the story about why it was that the Roman soldiers who were crucifying Jesus cast lots for his garments because they couldn't divide it up amongst themselves, even Stephen. So that idea does seem to have its roots in the garment that the New Testament says was worn by Jesus. Perfect. And then there's this strange rumor. So when the initiate went through for the very first time, and this is in several locations, um, that these symbols were cut into their garment their first time through. And um, that would be kind of a little scary, I think. Someone essentially pulls out a sharp object, you're in the temple going through for the first time, and they are cutting these symbols directly into the fabric, uh, which needs to be a, uh, which again was a, a wool uh, made uh, material. But there's this strange rumor that happens, and I, I've got it off this one book. I found it in two places, but they were both uh, interconnected. I can't remember what the second source was. And I, to be honest, I, I think you and I have talked about this. I'm very skeptical. I think you are too, that this actually happened. But we should at least note this. Um, a man, be this was in the book, uh, let's see here, 15 Years Among the Mormons, the, being the narrative of Miss Eddie V. Smith, and it's Kelson Winch Green who writes the book. He uh, interviews this Mary Eddie Smith, allegedly, and then records this. And here's what it says, quote, A man behind the veil examined us as to the passwords and grips Brigham had given us, and to whom we, had, we gave our new name, received at the first anointing. Holes through the veil enabled him to see us when we could not see him, and also to cut with a small pair of scissors certain marks besides others, the Masonic square and compass upon the right and left breast of our garment, and upon the right knee a gash deep enough to make a scar by which we were to be recognized as Mormons. This gash upon the right knee is now often omitted because many of the women object to it. Unquote. And in the second source, I read that it was only in the very initial state of the endowment being done that these cuts into the skin were done, and that um, Emma Smith, when she goes through for her endowment, um, is up in arms. Again, these two stories don't quite coincide because one has Brigham Young kind of leading it, the other one would have been while Joseph Smith was alive if Emma's participating. But in the uh, second source, it said that Emma. Uh, essentially stood up against that having her skin cut at all. And at that point they stopped doing it. And so these stories had a little bit of overlap, but I, I know fair Mormon for sure. And I know other places though, as well, throw some skepticism on this source as being trustworthy. And so we're just simply sharing it as a cool uh, data point, but would uh, suggest probably some apprehension at taking the story as uh, literally true. Any right. thoughts from you there? Well, I was immediately skeptical when you told me that story. And then I thought, well, what about the Nexium cult? Yeah. Cutting happens, doesn't it? We tattoo or scar people in a religious, high-demand, fundamentalist religion. Uh, it does happen, uh, unfortunately. So there's that about the original garment. The second thing I want to talk about was how they cannot be altered and then eventually are altered. And so we have this quote from Joseph Smith. He said, quote, 
ordinances instituted in the heavens before the foundation of the world in the priesthood for the salvation of men are not to be altered or changed. All must be saved on the same principles, teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. So we, we all kind of know that one. And, um, it is, I'm going to pull this off, Maven. It is, and then the next thing we're going to want, Maven, is that letter that I just put up recently, but not, not quite yet. Um, this idea that ordinances can't be altered, we've talked about that before. Every ordinance in the gospel has been changed to some degree or another. Even, even the, you pointed this out, even the sacrament prayer, which we think has been consistent, really was changed because Mormon and Moroni give it to us one way, and then all of a sudden Mormonism is doing it uh, a little different. But that's just the ordinances. So that quote alone, I didn't feel comfortable making the argument that the garment couldn't change. But then there are other quotes as well. President Joseph F. Smith, uh, 28th of June, 1906, he says, the saints should know that the pattern of endowment garments was revealed from heaven and that the blessings promised in connection with wearing them will not be realized if any unauthorized change is made in their form or in the manner of wearing them. And so there's this idea of unauthorized changes versus authorized changes. And I'll just throw out here, there's this idea that an authorized change requires Heavenly Father or Jesus to tell the leaders of the church that they are authorizing a change to happen. But you and I both understand that in today, the way the church works and all the way back to this time, really any time past uh, Brigham Young, these top leaders, the moment they are unanimous, that is the revelation. Um, and so it doesn't, it no longer requires God or Jesus to say anything. It just requires all 15 men to be in agreement, which does at least invoke kind of a conversation about what is authorized and what's unauthorized and what used to be authorized. What did that mean? Uh, when something was authorized early in the church history, and when something is authorized today, what does that mean? And I think that definition definition is always moving and changing. Any thoughts there from you? Yeah, I think that this is a, a common thing that we see in Mormonism and other religions, is that there, the change is bubbling up from the bottom. People are making unauthorized changes to the garment. And what we see in response is immediate retrenchment on the issue. That's the immediate response. And of course, we'll see something different here just a little bit later, as you will talk about, right? After the retrenchment, right? Then comes the relaxation of the retrenchment. But I also have to think that all of the top leaders of the church who are men, let me back up a second and say that I believe that the majority of members of the church who are going to be making modifications to the garment are probably women. And I say that only because of women's fashions. I know that when I wore the garment that I don't think I ever, well, maybe that's too much, but I didn't do a lot of stuff to the garment in order to make it match my fashion because men's fashions are pretty much plain and common, but women have much fancier things. And so sometimes they will do things to the garment in order to make it work with whatever it is they're wearing. The point being that each of the men who are leaders of the church are married to at least one woman. And so there's the opportunity there for a lot of influence coming in, not just from below, but from the side as well. Yeah, love it. Um, so the third piece, let me put this back up for a moment. I want you to notice, uh, audience, the original garment had a tie string. There weren't any buttons. 
Um, they weren't two pieces like we use today. It was a one piece garment with a tie string that held the chest closed essentially. And then because it was a one piece, I think the back had a flap uh, so that people could use the restroom without having to take the entire thing off. Um, but you can imagine how uh, kind of enjoyable that would have been to have to do that every time, especially if you had Taco Bell. It's better than taking it off on a cold Utah night. Look at that. Walking out to the outhouse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, do you notice something else different about this garment? I don't. What else? The navel. My understanding, and I just heard this recently, yeah. is that the original navel mark was not a line, but it was a circle. Just off to the side there. Mm, yeah. Mm, interesting. And they also came with a collar, too, which was mentioned in that first quote, but they had a collar. Um, and uh, again, that string. That string is going to become important here uh, as we talk about this next part. So the third quote I've got, <clears throat> the Lord has given us garments of the holy priesthood, and you know what that means. And yet there are those of us who mutilate them in order that we may follow the foolish and vain and permit me to say indecent practices of the world in order that such persons may imitate fashions. They will not hesitate to mutilate that which should be held by them. The most sacred of all things in the world next to their own virtue, next to their own purity of life. They should hold these things that God has given unto them sacred unchanged and unaltered, the very pattern which God gave them. Let us have the moral courage to stand against the opinions of fashion, and especially where fashion compels us to break a covenant and so commit a grievous sin. Joseph F. Smith there seems to be indicating that the original pattern for the garment, the one piece made out of wool with a drawstring, um, seems like it's the way that it has to be done. Um, let's see here. What was the last little piece? And then also, too, let's put this letter up. I'm going to move it over here. <clears throat> I don't know if we can, probably can't make that any bigger. But in this letter, um, perfect, you got it. Uh, so do you know, who, do we know who the, if you go back to the other page, I just want to see who the letter is from. It is uh, John W. Glenn Anderson. And he is essentially writing down his remembrance of an interaction um, with Joseph Fielding Smith, correct? Well, it says, does it say 1965? I, I can't even yeah, see the date. 24th day of February. President Smith. Yeah, so Joseph Fielding Smith. Go ahead into the next uh, slide there, maybe. Perfect. I asked President Smith, is it wrong to wear the string tie garments outside the temple? President Smith looked at me for several moments and then unbuttoning the third button on his shirt, brought out one of the ties on a pair of old style temple garments and said, quote, this is what we should be wearing. The Lord gave them to us, and so this is what I wear, unquote. I said, I have worn the old-style garments for two years now, and some of the ignorant brethren have accused me, so now I wear a t-shirt over them. President Smith then said, quote, when the Lord gave the garments to us, they had strings. I have never worn a button pair, However, I don't say those with buttons are not garments. Uh, this conversation left me with the idea that it was altogether fitting and proper to wear the original style garment outside the temple. It seems from that interaction that Joseph Fielding Smith believes that the original pattern is the correct pattern, but doesn't feel um, adamant enough about it to put his foot down and say the other brethren are off base by wearing something different. 
Right. And I also see that here's an individual whose name I had not heard before, but who apparently has an in enough with Joseph Healing Smith to talk with him about this subject, right? And this person who is obviously a faithful member of the church and doubtless known to President Smith goes into this conversation not knowing whether it was fitting and proper to wear the garment outside the temple. Yeah. Do you get that from there, that too, that last line? This conversation left me with the idea that it was altogether fitting and proper to wear the original style garment outside the temple. Yeah, I, I, it does make you wonder if inside the temple was the requirement was the original garment and that was what was used. And I don't know. No, neither do I. And when you were reading that statement from President Joseph F. Smith, the earlier statement, where he's mm -hmm. talking about how incredibly sacred the garment is and you shouldn't be messing with it, right? Because God gave it and gave the form and the pattern. You reveal, yeah, the, the revealed from heaven and uh, the pattern of the endowment garments was revealed from heaven and that the blessings promised in connection with wearing them will not be realized if any unauthorized change is made in their form or in the manner of wearing them. Yeah, it's a, it's a reactionary kind of statement. And I don't want to do too much psychoanalysis on this or anything, but I think it's possible that the extreme sacredness that the church has come to hold the garment in may have been part and parcel of a reaction to members modifying it without authorization. Right. Right. Totally. All right. So, um, but eventually they do change. 1924. Uh, after learning that the garments and temple clothing were not originally designed solely by Joseph Smith, the committee uh, dramatically altered the style of the temple garment. The committee made some changes. Sleeves were raised from the wrist to the elbow, legs raised from the ankle to just below the knee, buttons used instead of strings, and the collar eliminated and the crotch closed. The introduction of this new style garment caused considerable unrest among some members. Nevertheless, the pre-1923 style garment, here it is, was required in the temple ceremony until 1975 when its use became optional. It's a strange thing. Let me finish for this here, but then we'll talk about it. Occasionally, minor design changes have been implemented, such as lowering the neckline, shortening the legs and the sleeves, the most dramatic recent change was the two-piece garment in 1979. Garments are manufactured by the church's beehive clothing mills, which reportedly consults East Coast fashion designers for pattern considerations. Yeah, okay. While members are now permitted to make their own garments, they can make their own other temple clothing, your, your endowment clothing. But this idea that um, this would have been the original garment still used in the temple, you can see this thing happen where... Um, there's the original pattern. It's not supposed to change. They've articulated that it shouldn't change in several ways. As they begin to change it, the way that you convince membership that we really aren't doing anything we're not supposed to do is to keep the old style somewhere until the next generation becomes completely used to the new way of doing things. And then it's removed altogether. And you can see this play out in lots of ways within church history. Um, they tend to go quiet about things for a certain amount of time before they change them. And often they will leave remnants of an old idea somewhere. And then only when the next generation is completely forgot about it, do they remove it altogether. Your thoughts on going to the temple, 
um, a long time ago, long before you and I went, going to the temple and having to wear the original one-piece tie-string garment um, your first time through. How old do you think I am? That's what I mean. You and I did not participate in that. Oh, okay. I'm I was you just wondering a, if this was like a, a slam on me or something. No, no, no. I'm, I'm asking you to look old. back Thank into you. time before you and to give your two cents. By the way, when you tell me that, it makes me reconsider my interpretation of that conversation with Joseph Fielding Smith, that the garment worn outside the temple may have been a different kind of garment, as opposed to just not wearing a garment at all outside the temple. So let me correct that part. Second thing is that 1924 is an important year only because Joseph F. Smith, who came down very hard on people, what was the word he used? Uh, mangling, manipulating, uh, mauling. There was an M word with negative connotations. Doing that to the garment. Yeah, I'm looking here. Uh, well, doing something, modifying, but he said mutilating. something worse. Mutilating, that's it. He came down really hard on people mutilating the garment, but he passes away in 1919 from uh, the from pneumonia, I think, caused probably by the Spanish flu. And then five years later, in 1924, we have the church doing what he said should never be done. We have the church mutilating the garment, according to his definition. And once again, we see this phenomenon of progress in the church being achieved one death at a time. And you see Joseph F. Smith's son still holding on to dad's uh, theology because he still is uh, it, it, still tr suggesting that the one piece is the proper garment that should be worn by everyone, even though he won't go so far as to dog on the rest of the brethren for wearing something else. So yeah, you've got that. And then I wanted to show, uh, Maven, do we have a couple of the um, advertisements that were from in the past? If we've got those, we can put those. You don't have those? Um, let's Are these this. like Super Bowl ads for garments? Vintage garment ads. Give me two seconds here, because I think these are at least interesting. We won't spend long on these. Let me go put uh, my screen up. Share screen. Yeah, Bill has found some of these ads from maybe 100 years ago or so when these were advertised in the newspaper. Is that right? Yeah, these would have been uh, newspapers. Let's see if I can make this a little bigger. So let's put that up on the screen. So you've got LDS garments. And by the way, when the church comes down on anyone outside of the Beehive organization making them under the Relief Society's direction, by the way, it's kind of a, the, the making of the underwear pattern was given to the Relief Society, just so you know. But they have uh, this L dot, D dot, S dot. And when they come uh, down on the folks making garments and selling them outside of the church, they specifically name L dot, D dot, S dot garments. You mean LDS? Um, yeah, but but not exactly. It's like its own store, The Reliable, 15, um. 1253 South, 9th East. So there were a lot of outside companies that sold these. Let's see if we can find any others. But, you know, it, again, you've got that. So there's a button down, but with a tie string. Guaranteed LDS garments for less money. You can order them. Again, the, the original ones were this unbleached wool. So you could still order these uh, unbleached cotton, unbleached wool. 
So you could order those, but $1.95 looks like 95 cents for the really generic one. And as much as four fifty for the expensive stuff, heavyweight, all wool. And uh, see if there are any others here. So when they're saying unbleached, I'm getting the middle image of something other than white. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, because um, again, neither one of us were around back then. But they sure as hell couldn't have been very comfortable. Probably scratchy, huh? Oh, probably, especially the wool ones. And pretty warm in southern Utah in the middle of summer, huh? Oh yeah, you would know about that. Yeah, yeah, it's 113 degrees on some days out here. Um, but anyway, there's a bunch of these. Here's another one. Let's see if we can pull this one up. And then we'll move on from this. There we are. Latter-day Saint garments, approved correct pattern. This is from uh, the Model Knitting Works, Franklin Christensen Manager, Iverson Street, Salt Lake City. And so there were lots of folks that were making the garments uh, as a part of their business and making money doing it. And uh, Kind of cool. Yeah, very much so. You want to have the approved correct pattern. No, but yeah, they, they do. But at some point, the church comes down hard and says, from now on, it'll just be inside the church that these things are made. But hmm. we'll get to that later. That's not exactly true. Where's Teddy um, Roosevelt when you need him? Where is where's Teddy Roosevelt? All right. So the instruction around wearing them and how that has changed. Um, they originally, this idea was that they had to... so. When you make a commitment in the temple, when you make a covenant to wear the garment, you essentially covenant to wear it throughout your life. And the church forever and ever has interpreted that to mean uh, both day and night, essentially wear them always. And when you were younger, and even when I was younger, there were uh, comments about we should wear the garment when we're out doing yard work. We shouldn't look for reasons to take it off. We should, anything that could be done with it on should be done with it on to the extreme where uh, some people were even saying they were having sex with the garments left on. And I knew of a person, somebody told me a story once of a person who took a shower, but would just have them in their hand and hold them outside the shower while they washed. And then mm. as soon as they got out of the, turn the water off, they put the garment right back on because they felt so much pressure and to be committed to the garment, to wear it both day and night. That's your understanding too, right? RFM that you were to wear it every moment you possibly could and oh, not yes. look for reasons to take it off. Absolutely. The story and I, I had heard was of uh, a faithful member taking a bath with the garment on and it would be on like the right arm and the right leg while they're washing the left side of the body. And then they would reverse it to take care of the other side of the you don't no, 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 I believe you. It's just, I think it's crazy, <laughs> but that's what Mormons do. Right. And it's very important that you not put them on the floor as well. Right. Because that's disrespectful. Yeah. I, I would always use mine to clean my glasses and my mother-in-law would nicely, but she would always say that her brothers would always use their garment to do things like clean glasses or wipe the edge of a window or something. And she always said that bothered her a bunch. And so she was always kind of letting me know that I shouldn't be using it to clean my glasses. Um, but I, I just, you know, it was the easiest fabric I had nearby to, to wipe a smudge off my glasses. So I did that. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. I'm not judging. No, yeah, please don't. Um, all right. Let's bring up that Carlos AC. Uh, by the way, that name rings a bell, doesn't it? RFM, Carlos AC? Yeah. So Do does Quasimodo's. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember what Carlos, that's Carlos a bad AC joke. Is? Uh, anyway, yes, yeah, certainly he was the head of the missionary committee for a number of years, including back in the early 1980s. 
when who was the president of the MTC? Joseph Bishop. Joseph Bishop. Yeah, that was that whole McKenna Denson thing. Yeah. She actually did meet with Carlos AC, and you had dug deep into uh, the data there and had been able to prove that she had had a meeting with him. And yes. uh, that was curious cool. that. Yeah, yeah. President Monson, too, I believe. <laughs> so anyway, all right. This Carlos AC is a, uh, a talk. Uh, looks like it's 1997 in August. I couldn't find any video. I think it's just a text. But um, you'll see here this idea of the of wearing it um, night and day. Um, if if you will go just do a control F, Maven, and uh, find night and day, perfect. So there is, however, another piece of armor. Oh yeah, sorry. This has been interpreted to mean that it is worn as underclothing both night and day. Um, let's go down a little bit too. The fundamental principle ought to be to wear the garment and not find occasions to remove it. By the way, the whole reason I picked this topic was because I saw in the recent Midnight Mormons, Kwaku had a shirt on that seemed obvious he didn't have a, a temple garment on. Mm. And I was curious if he had ever, if he had received the Melchizedek priesthood and if he was in fact endowed. And what people, when I put the picture online, what people responded with was that the requirements have changed, that it is no longer required to wear the garment both night and day. And I, I thought, no way, no way. So I started looking and then all of a sudden I'm down the rabbit hole of garments and thought it would make a fun episode. Um, so the fundamental principle ought to be the wear of the garment and not find occasions to remove it. Thus, members should not remove either all or part of the garment to work in the yard, there it is, or to lounge around the home in swimwear or immodest clothing, nor should they remove it to participate in recreational activities that can reasonably be done with the garment worn beneath regular clothing. When the garment must be removed, such as for swimming, it should be restored as soon as possible. So the lady using it in the, you know, keeping it on in the bath, that last line probably relieves her of having to do that. Um, sounds like anytime we're jumping in a body of water, we are getting some sort of permission to take it off. Um, any thoughts from here before I move to the next source on on this idea of night and day? I'm just glad it doesn't mention dance class. Yeah, dance class. Because you did you took yours off for dance class. I did, yes. Could it have been reasonably worn for dance class? I don't think reasonably. Maybe uh, the top half, but the bottom half uh, is going to get into trouble with the tights and the dance belt, if you know what I mean. Okay. All right. Well, I just want to make sure that you are keeping all the rules. There's a lot of rules there. But I will tell you, my advanced ballet teacher, Mr. Denelian, back in the 80s, told me, I'm doing Mr. Denelian, Mr. D right now, in case you don't know. Okay. Um, he told me once when I was speaking with him that he had danced with a gentleman who was a Mormon. And this was decades ago, but he always remembered seeing marks on his nipples, underneath his T-shirt. And he thought that was quite strange. And striking, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I don't I don't know your teacher, but I got to imagine that was a really good rendition of uh, Mr. What's his name? Danilian. It's the Mr. best. Mr. Danilian. Harry, the best. The best. Okay. But it's not just Carlos Acey that tells us that the garments should be worn night and day. Maven, will you show us President Nelson if you've got that one handy? Look at this. Let's go all the way to the top first, and let's and then it ends up being the middle there. 
but let's go all the way to the top and see this talk. Prepare for the blessings of the temple by Elder Russell M. Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve. So he's the current president of the church. And he's the one, if it is true that it's been removed to have to wear it night and day, this is going to go against what he's told us uh, in a talk. Let's go about halfway down back to that quote again. This night and day stuff is starting to sound like a Cole Porter song. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Quote, church members who have been clothed with the garment in the temple have made a covenant to wear it throughout their lives. This has been interpreted to mean that it is worn as underclothing both day and night. The promise of protection and blessings is conditioned upon worthiness and faithfulness in keeping the covenant. Seems like President Nelson is also reiterating that it should be worn both day and night. Uh, Anything there? No, absolutely he is. I, I can see it. You keep saying, he says day and night. You say night and day. I think it means the same thing. It does. It does. All right. The temple question 20 years ago. Here was the question that I was asked in my temple interview. Do you keep the covenants that you made in the temple? Question, Mark. Do you wear the garment both night and day as instructed in the endowment and in accordance with the covenant you made in the temple? Question mark, of course. And then um, we'll get to the new question in a moment. But if you've got that letter, uh, Maven, this should be the very next thing. Yep. So this is when I was a bishop, I had a separate piece of paper that was in my temple recommend book. And my stake presidency told me that they were taught from higher up and were told to teach me that every time I gave someone a temple recommend for the first time and renewed a temple recommend and gave them a new one, I was to read this paper to them. And I I remember like this almost verbatim, uh, wearing the garment is a sacred privilege of those who have taken upon themselves the covenants of the temple. The garment is a reminder of these covenants and when properly worn will serve as a protection against temptation and evil. It is expected that members will wear the garment both night and day according to covenants made in the temple. Members should not adjust the garment or wear it contrary to the instructions in order to accommodate different styles of clothing, even when such clothing may be generally accepted. The garment should not be removed either entirely or partially to work in the yard or for other activities that can reasonably be done with the garment worn properly beneath the clothing. Um, you're going to have to move that comment just for a moment, uh, Maven. Members who have made covenants in the temple should be guided by the Holy Spirit to answer for themselves personal questions about the wearing about wearing the garment. These sacred covenants are between the member and the Lord, and the proper wearing of the garment is an outward expression of an inner commitment to follow the Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I think the yard thing is weird. Like they say that thing specifically, and it almost feels as if they don't want members to see each other, right? Like if you're mowing the grass and I go out to get the newspaper and I notice you're mowing the grass without your garments, I suddenly maybe feel a little less pressure to follow all the rules. And so I think there's this idea of, especially when they say yard work of trying to, again, I'm just guessing here, trying to prevent us from kind of signaling to each other that we are being more lax. Like they really want obedience. Right. Yeah. What I like is the last paragraph where it says it's between you and God after telling you all the different ways that you need to keep it on. 
yeah, keep it on for everything, but don't, but nobody else say anything. It's between him and the Lord. Right. By the way, I, I learned this terrible joke about garments when I was in the missionary training center. It's kind of a visual gag. Hopefully I can do it while I'm seated. It talks about Catholics, right? You know how Catholics, Bill, okay, I need your attention. Put the you down. testicles, wallet, and keys. Yes. Right. And walk, yes. How Catholics do this, right? Yeah. Well, Warrens have the same thing, except they go like this, and then you go down on the knees. <laughs> so if I'm standing up, that's a little more effective. Because they're bunched up, huh? Right. But try that at your next party. It was actually Dan Vogel's comment that reminded me of it because he says the, the temple garments constantly remind you of your covenants because you're always adjusting them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right. Then there's this first presidency letter to Arthur C. Smith, March 10th, 1915. Uh, do we have that one, Maven? Perfect. And so you see in this um, development of temple worship, let's see here. So this was, um, if you look there at the bottom, Joseph F. Smith, Anthon H. Lund, and Charles W. Penrose to Arthur C. Smith, March 10th, 1915. The, so one, the pattern of the temple garment was given by revelation to the prophet Joseph Smith, exact date as to month or year unknown. Number two, the garment with buttons instead of strings referred to by you is not the temple garment and should not be worn as such. Hmm. Number three, because they went from strings to buttons. And here the first presidency seems to be saying that's not exactly it. And then number three. This it is, is the not... origin of the Broadway hit song, Buttons and Bows, I think. Buttons and Bows. Dun -dun -dun. And it is number three. It is not the right to leave off wearing the temple garment during the day because of hot weather. It should not be taken off at all, excepting to be renewed by another. So you change of clothes mm. or for the purpose of bathing or for work or other purposes requiring, require, uh, sorry, requiring the barring of the body. Was so it something you have to be somewhat naked for, right? You have yeah. to take your shirt off or whatever. And that's a first presidency letter in 1915. So there's another admonition that the temple garment, one piece with strings is really what it's supposed to be. And yet this, this was really a hot button issue at the time, wasn't it? This is the stuff that Heavenly Father worries about with his children. Right. And it, it involves buttons. <laughs> meanwhile, leaders of the church, <laughs> meanwhile, leaders of the church still believe in disavowed racist theories as doctrine, and Heavenly Father seems to be powerless to change their mind. Oh, you mean at the time they're writing this? Yeah. Yeah. They, they believe in, in doctrine, things that will be in the future disavowed racist theories. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, this is why, because God is focused on this particular issue. Yeah, he's really he's really straining at gnats here, isn't he? Yeah, we're not going to have any buttons. We're going to have strings. Yeah. And uh, it seems as though, again, they're talking about this idea that it shouldn't come off for anything. Um, do you have that uh, article, Maven, where they're By talking the way, about... Bill, please, Bill please. I got to ask you. What yeah. do you think they mean when they say in the last line, or for work or other purposes requiring the bearing of the body? Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Sex, huh? I think so. We can't say it. No, you can't say that. No. 
So, but it does seem like they're saying, hey guys, you don't have to wear them for everything such as sex or a bath. They, they probably had heard the same stories we did and just wanted to try to put an end to that because that's the role of prophet seers and revelators. Well, yeah, and it, but it's not a legalistic religion. There should be no disputations among you. <laughs> All right, so the next thing, um, it, there should be, this isn't going to be it. There should be a um, link there at uh, number two on the section we're in. And it should take us to an article where women are complaining uh, about how the garment fits and both, and as well as the hygiene of the garment too. I've got a feeling if it weren't for women, we'd still be wearing long johns. I think so. My vagina has to breathe. Mormon women beg the church to redesign sacred undergarments that members must wear at all times, insisting it isn't bringing me closer to Christ. It's giving me UTIs. And so what happens here is that um, when the church does surveys, it realizes that there's a there, not as many people are wearing the garment as they thought, and that people aren't wearing them all the time anyway. They're taking them off for lots of things, uh, including hot weather or being inside or going out with friends to a party or something. They're taking them off, and women are um, constantly raising a voice to how unhealthy the garments are, how uncomfortable they are to wear. And it seems like in recent years, as this kind of stuff has happened, uh, the church has now changed uh, the temple question so that the day or night and day is no longer part of the, the rhetoric. And so, Maven, if you'll go to the um, section three, uh, number A, or letter A, sorry, in this uh, update from the church on the temple questions. Perfect. So let's go all the way to the top first and let's just see what this is. So this is one of these letters that's turned into, sent out to stake presidents and bishoprics, stake presidencies and bishoprics, preparing to enter the temple. The date on this is October 6, 2019. And then it, it basically explains that changes have happened. And then down below in the following pages, it gives the new temple interview. And we'll go down to there. And I think it's question maybe 13. Yep. 13. Do you keep the covenants that you made in the temple, including wearing the temple garment as instructed in the endowment? And then read the temple garment statement included below to each member. So we already talked about how in the past they said night and day. And then also in that separate letter that I read to everybody at the time, it encouraged them to wear it night and day. But here's the new statement that we read. Wearing the temple garment. The temple garment is a reminder of covenants made in the temple and when worn properly throughout life, will serve as a protection against temptation and evil. The garment should be worn beneath the outer clothing. It should not be removed for activities that can reasonably be done while wearing the garment. Notice they don't tell you anything about what those activities are anymore. And it should not be modified to accommodate different styles of clothing. Endowed members should seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit to answer personal questions about wearing the garment. It is a sacred privilege to wear the garment and doing so is an outward expression of an inner commitment to follow the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to put on my prophet hat for a moment. Um, oops, I just I just dropped it. We'll go without it. Um, it seems to me, RFM, that what's going to happen is the garment, there was some talk a few years ago that they were talking about, again, just like in uh, earlier times, and we'll get to the story that that goes with, but they had talked about making the garment only mandatory inside the temple as part of the ritual and not 
imposing that members have to wear it outside the temple. And I'm, my gut tells me that that conversation happened early in the history of the church. That conversation happened again, maybe four or five years ago. And um, this is a, to me, a pretty significant change where you're now going to keep it out of the milieu of all the younger members that the garment is to be worn night and day. And it seems like the next step then would be to make the, the garment just less and less part of standard Mormon daily life and eventually to have it only be part of the ritual in the temple and to not have it be part of the outside world that we that we live in. And this seems to be a very solid first step heading that direction, if I'm right, that that's what's going to happen. Any thoughts from you? It's strange that they, that they take out that language, although they do keep in the idea that the garment, first off, I'm really glad that they, they make it clear that the garment's supposed to be worn underneath the outer clothing, because otherwise, you know, we could have a lot of problems out there. Yeah, that would be strange, wouldn't it? But it also says that the garment should not be removed for any activities that can reasonably be done with the garment on. So they're kind of saying the same thing, aren't they? Without saying night and day. Right. But th- what's the reason for removing night and day if it was at one time super important and, and sacred to wear at night and day? No, I don't know. Yeah. The, my, again, you'll probably stop at the facts. I'll be, I'll go a little further. I just think other changes are coming and this is their way of softening the language as they move towards that, that new way of doing things. Do you think Mormons wear garments in a hundred years? If you had to guess. Well, I'm advocating for a new design that involves pasties. Pasties. So just symbols pasted on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that's the way of the future. It sounds like you'd be comfortable with no garments. Um, actually, since you brought it up. Please. I liked my garments. Did you? I do like my garments. Yeah. I feel really good in my garments. Good. And I'm being serious. Yeah. I don't know if it's psychosomatic. I take that into account. But putting those garments on, I just feel uh, so right with the cosmos. I love it. That's the way it's supposed to work. And it sounds like I'm I'm kidding, but I'm actually not. Yeah. I don't know if there's anybody else out there like that. And this is after I'm, you know, kind of post-believing in Mormonism, post-believing in the efficacy of temple rituals, post-believing in the garment, but still, I kind of like it. They're comfortable. Yeah. And maybe there's a market out there for non-Mormon garment wearers. Maybe, maybe the church should open up advertising like Super Bowl commercial or something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, By the way, can I tell you please. my experience learning about garments? Please. While you're looking down. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, no, I joined, I'm a convert. I'm the only member of the church in my family. I don't get to walk around and see mom and dad hanging out in the, you know, their garments. Uh, or have any exposure to it in some other way that maybe people who are raised in the church do. But this is 1978. I get baptized. I'm going to be going on a mission. Part of that's going to the temple. I do a temple prep class. It's 12 classes, 12 lessons to prepare people for the temple. Guess how many words there were in that about temple garments? Zero. None. Nothing. There was no preparation for me about garments. And it just so happened that uh, I've talked about Bruce, 
who was the guy who converted me and baptized me. Well, he left on his mission three weeks before I did. So three weeks before I left on my mission, he's having his open house, which I don't know if they have those anymore. It's kind of you've had your farewell at the church that day. And then that evening at somebody's house, there's, you know, an event and you invite people and you kind of say farewell to the guy or gal. In this case, it was it was Bruce. And I am outside and I remember being outside the house, hanging out with my friends, my guy friends from church, from church, excuse me. And somebody brings up this thing about wearing temple garments. This is the first I've ever heard of it. And part of me is going, what the heck? And the other part is thinking, are you kidding? But they're not kidding. It's real. Yeah. So I picked up my knowledge of temple garments on the street corner, the same place I picked up my knowledge about sex. Yeah. And I was you blown were... away. I was really, I was kind of shaken about this. You're about to have a system tell you what underwear you have to wear for the rest of your life. And nobody even tells you, you would have been, it, had it not been for this conversation that probably wasn't normal to happen, you would have walked into the temple that day and learned at the very moment it's happening that you have to wear different underwear for the rest of your life. Yes. Yeah. And that just would have been one surprise on top of a bunch of other surprises yeah. on my first time through the temple. But I go through in November of 1979 so it's one piece time, baby. Yeah. And I stock up on the one piece garments. You got to come in there with a slew of them and go to the temple. And apparently, as it turns out, shortly after I go on my mission, and it seems like it was December of the same year, the following month, December of 1979, the church rolls out the two piece. And yeah, now you don't have to wear the one piece that, that Joseph F. Smith would prefer us all be in. Right. But that's all I got is one piece because I already bought them all. So yeah. I'm wearing one pieces throughout my mission. So not until they get ragged and you throw them away, do you get to get the two pieces? Garments getting ragged and being thrown away by Mormon missionaries is something that never happens in my yeah. experience. No, no, no. You're probably years later in a marriage before you get your next pair, of, get your first pair of two pieces, huh? It's like guys in underwear. You know, they never get thrown away. They just get worn so much. Eventually, they just sort of disseminate yeah. into the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, Maven, if you'll throw up Jana Reese's article. And um, let's go down to, she has a part about the removal of night and day. This I don't think this is it. Is this Jana Reese's thing? Yeah, okay, sorry. Can we make that a little bigger? Like the beat, beat, beat of the tom-toms. If not, no big. I can stare in close. No, no, we're good. That's a little Cole Porter humor while we're looking for the correct place in the that's article. That's good enough. Perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, the removal of night and day as instructed in the endowment from the Temple Recommend interview resolves a weird problem that was present for years. The endowment ceremony itself didn't explicitly have people covenant to wear the garment night and day. The night and day language was added to the Temple Recommend interview process in 1976. 20 years later, the phrase, in accordance with the covenant you made in the Temple, was inserted for as well. So for at least four decades, around the clock, uh, garment use has been the expectation as specified in church curriculum, as well as in separate set of guidelines 
that local leaders were instructed to read to members to explain what it meant in practice to wear the garment throughout your life. Those guidelines stipulated, for example, talks about the yard work and all the other things. So Jana is commenting that it actually kind of clears up this almost a discrepancy where you're covenanting to wear the garment throughout your life. That seems pretty ambiguous to some degree. And the church comes in and says, this is what it means. And now you're under covenant under certain language that really wasn't the covenant that you made. And so on some level, this idea of taking out the the night and day uh, makes it so that the covenant you're keeping throughout your life is the actual covenant you made in the temple but now everybody gets to decide, Quaku included. Everybody gets to decide when and where they wear their garments. That seems so different than the Mormonism you and I grew up with. And I'm sure, you know, the folks in the comments are also pointing that out, that it was so important that we wore the garment night and day. Yes, very mm-hmm. much so. But this whole exercise is so much like, um, oh, um, the human penchant for wanting to pigeonhole people and have different... Uh, pecking orders is what I'm trying for, right? Like the chickens, we're not that far removed from the the farmyard chickens. They always want to have a pecking order. And this idea of garments is a great place to show where you are in the pecking order. And you wear the original one, you wear the original design, you wear it all the time, even when you're having sex, even when you're taking a bath, that puts you at the top of the spiritual pecking order. And then people like Kwaku, well, and I, I'm not I'm not picking on him. All I'm yeah. saying is that people who don't go to those extremes now can be looked down on by people who do. And I kind of got the sense that that was what was the underlying sentiment in that Joseph Fielding Smith conversation, which is I wear the ties. There are other brothers who wear the buttons, but I'm not going to say that they're lesser than I am even though I'm going to think it really hard. And yes, this is the revealed pattern that we're supposed to wear. That's right. It was revealed. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Even though we don't know the day or the circumstances of this revelation. So Mormon kids today, as they become adults, no more night and day. They get to pick when and where they wear them. They do need to wear them throughout their lives. But if I put it on once a week and wear it till the day I die once a week, did I not wear it throughout my life? Yeah, and Martine seems to be adding an important comment down there below. Can you see that, Bill, where there's no covenant to wear garments? It's an, an instruction, instruction, not a covenant. But if the leadership wants you to do anything, then it's a covenant. Yeah, yeah. All right, so now I want to go into how they went from magical to not magical. And so there are, um, if we go back to that Carlos AC letter, uh, Maven, if you've got that one, he's uh, kind of the the lowest ranked leader that I could find this from. Um, there's some folks that are outside the church as well that will not shouldn't say outside the church, but outside the leadership that also speak on it. But if you've got that Carlos AC one, oh, you're muted. I have several of his, so I don't know the quote it is that we're looking at. Uh, it should be that original paper. It, so there is a link there. It's the Enzyme, August 1997, pages 19 through 23. Okay. If you have that one. This one. Yep. And if you do a control F and uh, look for I fear. 
I was muted there. I just wanted to break in for a second while Maven's trying to concentrate and say, hi, Maven. Here it is. So I, this is Carlos AC. I fear that uh, too many church members take for granted the promise of protection and blessings associated with the temple garment. Some wear it improperly and others remove it to suit whims of circumstance. In such cases, the instructions of modern prophets, seers, and revelators are ignored and spiritual protection placed, spiritual protection placed in jeopardy. And, and I don't know if you've got, uh, if there's anything down there, I'm just going to see because I don't have that as part of mine. Talking no, about wearing the one-piece garments improperly, am I the only person who ever accidentally put them on backwards? It happened once or twice to me, yes. Okay, and I'm not by, sure if I once realized or twice, before I, mean I like went to the times. bathroom or after. Yeah, no, no, you you went in one way and had them on a different way when you came out. Huh? <laughs> oh, man. All right, next up is a first presidency uh, letter. And by the way, you see there the to break our covenants is to forfeit the protection and blessings promised. He's a little ambiguous. I don't think it sounds real distinct that they are a spiritual protection uh, in terms of being magical or having supernatural protective powers. Um, but anyway, uh, first presidency letter, 3rd July, 1974. Um and this is going to, oh, that is it. In a letter from the first presidency dated, sorry, Maven, I'm way behind here. In a letter from the first presidency dated 3 July, 1974, church members were reminded of the sacred nature of the garment. The sacredness of the garment should be ever present and uppermost in the wearer's mind. The blessings which flow from the observance of our covenants are sufficiently great to recompense for any mere inconvenience. To break our covenants is to forfeit spiritual, sorry, to forfeit the protection and blessings promised for obedience to them. And then um, if you'll find that next one there, which is the 10 October, 1988, it should be his mention. Um, yep. Perfect. And in a letter to priesthood leaders dated 10 October, 1988. And by the way, I, I couldn't find these two letters. We had to use Carlos AC. It's the only place I knew these two letters existed in the letter dated uh, 10 October, 1988. The first presidency made the following important statements regarding how the garment should be worn church members who have been clothed with the garment in the temple have made covenant to wear it throughout their lives. This has been interpreted to mean that it is worn as underclothing both day and night. Um, and then down just a little bit there, we'll see what that one there is. The fundamental principle ought to be to wear the garment and not to find occasions to remove it. Talks about, again, working in the yard and all the other stuff that we read before. Um, the next one is The Holy Temple by Boyd K. Packer. He says... The garment represents sacred covenants. It fosters modesty and becomes a shield and protection to the wearer. The Holy Temple, Elder Boyd K. Packer. Well, there's George quoting from, there is quoting temple language, isn't he? A shield uh, I, and a protection. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that for sure, but I'm, I, yeah, I've been to a temple in a long, long time. But perhaps. Um, the, so the next one here is George F. Richard's journal, October 12th, 1921. The covenant of sacrifice should willingly be made. The wearer of the garment in the protection it affords. It protects life, morals, virtue, honor, and faith. Uh, the next one is the teachings of Spencer W. Kimball. Temple, and this is in, yeah, teachings of Spencer W. Kimball, page 539. Uh, temple garments afford protection, 
I am sure one could go to extreme in worshiping the cloth of which the garment is made. But one could also go to the other extreme, though generally I think our protection is a mental, spiritual, moral one, yet I am convinced that there could be and undoubtedly have been many cases where there has been through faith an actual physical protection. So we must not minimize that possibility. What is the church doing today, RFM? Are they doing what President Kimball admonished not to happen, which is to minimize the possibility that they actually are a supernatural protection. Right. And this is interesting, this quote, because uh, the way I was raised in the church is that the main purpose of the garment was to give physical protection. And that's the way I like to think of it, Bill. It's a little bit different than the way you phrase it. I think that whether it's physical protection or spiritual protection, it's but they're both supernatural yeah. in nature. But the physical protection is the one that is the lead for me when I was raised in the church. And so I was interested in hearing this quote from Spencer Kimball, where he specifically says physical protection, even though he doesn't appear to be aware of any instances where that has happened. He says it could happen. And there undoubtedly have been times when it ha has happened. Right. But I don't know of any, but. Um, I'm guessing that this has happened. It is a current belief in the church when he's writing this. And what year was that? Uh, I don't know what year that book was published, but Teachings of Spencer W. Kimball, page 539. Yeah, well, he lived a long time, and so that's not restricted just at the time when he was president between 73 and 85. But yeah. that is a reflection of the Mormonism I grew up with. And I know that I'm not the only one who feels that way and that there's a video clip, which I'm not trying to introduce for you. No, I, of a yep. prominent member of the church who tells a story along those lines of physical protection being provided by the garment. Yep. And so we can actually go to that one next. Let's pull up that 60 minutes conversation with Where our good friend, Bill the Marion. sacred undergarments. Yes, I do. And I can tell you they do protect you from harm. Really? Uh-huh. I was in a very serious boat accident. Fire. Boat was on fire. I was on fire. Mm-hmm. I was burned, my pants were burned right off me. I was not burned above my knee. Where the garment was, I was not burned. And you believe it was the sacred undergarments? Yeah, I do, particularly on my legs, because my, my pants were gone, and my undergarments were not cinched. One of you guys pointed out he's trying to hide the Mike Wallace. Oh, he's thing. doing this thing. Yeah, yeah, he's That's where to... I learned it was for Mike Wallace. That's where you learned it. Hiding the smile behind, not, and not successfully. No, no, Either, I might add. Yeah, you can Behind see this it. little finger going across the mouth. Yeah. Yeah, your underwear magically protected you. Yes. So first off, there's an extra layer of clothes there. It would take a slightly more severe fire that once it burned through your pants and burned your bottom part of your leg, it would have to be a little worse before it burned the garment. So technically, if you got away from the fire and it extinguished prior to that barrier, that whatever that line is before it burns your jeans, but doesn't burn the second layer of clothing, your second layer of clothing wouldn't get burned and your legs wouldn't get burned, right? Above the knee. You are such a skeptic, Bill. I, I hear it in the tone of your voice. So Bill Marriott's telling us that there is some sort of supernatural protection that he was afforded by wearing the garment. Yes. And, and, you know, good for him for 
saying it publicly in front of millions of people. Yeah. Uh, the next one is in the Enzyme, August 1997, page 19. Do you have this one, Maven? Maybe this would be a good time for me to tell you the, the story that I heard early on in the church. And this is one of those faith-promoting rumors, but it was specific enough that it was a jet fighter pilot, American, who was flying over Vietnam, got shot down. His jet went down in a ball of flame. He was killed on impact. But but when they found the body, it was charred beyond all recognition except where the garment was located. And beneath the garment, it was not burned at all. And I have to tell you, I remember... Even in my most, most faithful days when I heard this story, thinking, well, I guess the garment really didn't do him a lot of good after all, did it? He, he died anyway. He was yeah. charred. Yes. Thank goodness those garments were, didn't, uh, didn't incinerate, huh? But it's like Marlon Brando says in The Wild One, you live fast, you die young, you leave a good-looking corpse. That's right, except this one wasn't. This was like a toasted marshmallow but burnt too far. It looked good under the garments. Under That's the garments, it was amazing. Him and, yes. him and Brother Marriott, both. <laughs> yes. So and by the is... way, I heard that story before he told his story. And I'm not calling Brother Marriott a liar at all. But there is a similarity between the stories that is suggestive. Yeah. When President Packer was only an ordinary member of the Quorum of the Twelve, we had a regional conference uh, near Cleveland, Ohio, and he was the concluding speaker, and Mormons came from far, far away because it was the mission field out in the Midwest, and there just weren't a lot of us. And we came from far, far away to hear him speak, and he told the Bill Marriott story, and he promised everybody in that room that they would have physical protection if they wore the garment as instructed, wore it night and day. And uh, so that story didn't die with 60 Minutes. President Packer continued to tell Bill Marriott's boat accident story and the fire that occurred and how he wore his garments and he wasn't burned where the garments were. This was no boating accident. This was no boating. Okay. Which movie is that from? Hello. I'll let the audience chime in on that one. That's a <laughs> gimme. Will you scan all the way to the very top, Maven, just so we can see the Enzyme article itself, the name of it? Yep. Temple Garment, same one, Carlos AC. Okay, back down. And then um, in this instance, he's talking about what President Lee said. President Lee replied, Harold B. Lee, that is. President Harold B. Lee replied that he didn't need to, and this was about, um, scroll up just a little bit here because I want to get that question, which is one more sentence up. He was asked only one question by President Harold B. Lee. Do you wear the garments properly? To which he answered in the affirmative. He then asked if President Lee was, wasn't going to ask him about his worthiness. President Lee replied that he didn't need to, for he had learned from experience that how one wears the garment is the expression of how the individual feels about the church and everything that relates. Uh, sorry here. Let me see. Um, da, 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 da. Expression of how an individual feels about how the church and everything that relates to it. It is a measure of one's worthiness and devotion to the gospel. Um, so this is just another story, idea. But it makes me wonder if that's really true. Why don't they just reduce the temple recommend questions to one? Right. Yeah. Are you are you worthy and devoted to the gospel? No. The question is, do you wear the garments properly? Yeah. I'd, I'd like just one question overall. And that's the one, apparently, according to the story about President Lee. It, it solves all the problems, doesn't it? If you're wearing yeah. the garment, you're checking all the other boxes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
let's see here. Carlos AC says this, uh, I believe it's in the article here as well. Here is, however, another piece of armor worthy of our consideration. It is the special underclothing known as the temple garment or garment of the holy priesthood. This garment worn day and night serves three important purposes. It is a reminder of the sacred covenants made with the Lord in his house, a protective covering for the body, and a symbol of modesty of dress and living that should characterize the lives of all the humble followers of Christ. Then later on, he says, the piece of armor called the temple garment not only provides the comfort and warmth of a cloth covering, it also strengthens the the wearer to resist temptation, fend off evil influences, and stand firmly for right. Um, How would you fend off evil influences if the garment has no supernatural ability? Well, you see, once again, this is one of these statements where he's calling it armor, which has a very real connotation. I think this was back when they tried the experiment of making the garments out of Kevlar for a period of time. Yeah, but then he backs off on it. And what he says, all three of these things are very spiritual and spiritualized in nature, strengthening the wear to resist temptation, fend off evil influences. Well, we don't, we don't have crucifixes, so we can't use those. So the garment fends off evil influences and stand firmly for the right. See, there's nothing in there that you can tie him down to saying that this is physical protection, the way that Spencer Kimball mentioned it in that quote from his book that you gave. Another fact, Joseph Smith took his off just before Carthage. Oliver Huntington elaborated on this in his journal entry for the 22nd of April, 1897. Among other things, both new and old, was repeated the fact that Prophet Joseph Smith pulled off his garments just before starting to Carthage to be slain, and he advised Hiram and John Taylor to do the same, which they did. And Brother Taylor told Brother Willard Richards what they had done and advised him to take off his also. But Brother Richard said that he would not take his off, and did not, and he was not harmed. Joseph said before taking his garments off that he was going to be killed. He was going, quote, was going as a lamb to the slaughter, unquote, and he did not want his garments to be exposed to the sneers and jeers of his enemies. These facts all came from President John Taylor's lips, after he was president of the church, Elder John Morgan had told them to me, as stated to him by Brother Taylor, Sister Lucy B. Young said that Brother John Taylor told her in answer to direct questions. I'm having trouble thing. diagramming how many uh, people removed we are from the source of this. Yeah, it's so. Um, it's already so preposterous that it's like ridiculous six ways to Sunday, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we, really do a second, a we do have a second. Yeah, we do have a second. Yeah, we do have a second by Joseph Smith because if he'd worn his garments, he would not have been assassinated. Right. Uh, these facts all came from President John Taylor's lips after he was president of the church. Elder John Morgan had told them to me, as stated to him by Brother Taylor. Sister Lucy B. Young said that Brother John Taylor told her an answer to direct questions, the same all except with regard to Willard Richards. So again, mouth of two or three witnesses. And we do have this secondary thing. Elder John Taylor confirmed that Joseph and Hiram and himself were without their robes in the jail at Carthage. While Dr. Richards had his on, but corrected the idea that some had, 
that they had taken them off through fear, W.W. Phelps said Joseph told him one day about that time that he had laid aside his garment on account of hot weather. Duh. Yeah. The truth shines forth. Yeah. It's June 27th in freaking Illinois. And the garments are union suits. They're long johns worn under your clothing, which is probably already stifling enough given the styles back then. So here is Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith and John Taylor, quite sensibly, I think, not wearing long johns under their clothes when they go to Carthage in yeah. late June of 1844. And here's Willard Richards, who is wearing his. And by the way, as, as you're going to note, this appears to be the very fact that, uh, of course, Hiram and Joseph get killed by the mob. John Taylor gets uh, savagely wounded mm-hmm. by multiple balls. And Willie Richards, the largest of the group, manages to escape without any injury. So that itself is remarkable. Now, you couple that with the fact, apparently the fact, that Willard Richards is the only one of the four wearing his temple garment. And I think a legend is born. Yeah. To the point where in Heber C. Kimball's diary for 21st December, 1845 kept by William Clayton and cited in the Nauvoo endowment companies, page 117, um, Heber C. Kimball spoke of elder Richards being protected at Carthage jail, having on the robe, while Joseph and Hiram and Elder Taylor were shot to pieces. So there you have a, a leader in the upper echelon of church leadership acknowledging that uh, it was the wearing of the garment that saved Richards and the not wearing of the garment that killed two of the three and, as you pointed out, savagely wounded the third. And we even have a quote from Brigham Young. I don't have it here because Brigham isn't super specific, but he essentially says something along the lines of, if Joseph and Hiram had kept their commitments, uh, they would have been saved at Carthage. And uh, there are lots of scholars in the church that use that quote to support that he's talking about garments. Even Fair Mormon mentions the quote. Can I mention something about that that occurred to me as we were talking and as, as I was thinking about this? There are certain times in church history and in other religions as well. You gave me a great example about the house burning down in the Bible, which I hope you'll share. Sure. Where a catastrophe happens. And it's a catastrophe where you go, how on earth did God allow this to happen? And then, because you can't change the fact that the catastrophe happened and that God obviously allowed it to happen, a fig leaf is sought in order to make it okay. In other words, this horrible thing happens, but there's this tiny minor miracle over here that we're going to focus on in order to justify the catastrophe that God allowed to happen. Classic example is Zion's camp, 1834. The revelations from God say, you're going to get some men together. You're going to march from Ohio down to Missouri, and you are going to redeem Zion, i.e. you're going to fight the battle against the militias down there that took the property away from the Latter-day Saints where the city of Zion is to be built. They'll redeem Zion. They will get that property back. They will settle there. They will inhabit it. Then the saints can come back in and do what it was that they were supposed to do and commanded to do in the first place. That never happens. It never happens because, well, apparently God was doing something else other than fighting the battles of Zion's camp the way he said he was going to. 
So they don't beat the militia in Missouri. They have to actually turn around and come back a thousand miles to Ohio. That is a huge catastrophe theologically in the history of the church. And so whenever we talk about Zion's camp, we rarely talk about much except for the fact we want to rush to the end, which is I think February of 1835 when the first 12 apostles in this dispensation are called. And most of them were on Zion's camp. And so we, we get the teaching. Oh, well, Zion, the purpose of Zion's camp was to give experience to these men who would shortly thereafter be called as apostles. And I'm sure that there's nobody who's been a member of the church for any amount of time who hasn't heard that story. That's a fig leaf. Okay. That's a way to explain away why it was that this massive catastrophe happened by finding a tiny little bit of relevance that we're going to focus on. Maven, do you have something to share? Yeah, you and someone else had brought this up in the chat. And so I had actually found it. Um, I guess I should say it's a little bit apocryphal or I, I can't prove like where the source was from, but I remember hearing this story. Um, and it, it it was about two sister missionaries who had their apartment had been broken into and stabbed. And this was something I think a friend of one of the uh, sisters had posted on Facebook. So it's not directly from them. So but I'm going to go ahead and put it up. And this, this was just a few years ago, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Just a couple. I remember years ago. this. Um, so this is what a friend had said. The sisters were stabbed in the middle of the night by an invader inside their apartment. The man came in at 4 a.m., removing his shoes to be quieter and grabbed a knife out of their kitchen. Then he walked into their bedroom and started stabbing both sisters. Both sisters had to go to the hospital because each was stabbed multiple times and were in the ICU for about a week and now both re like returning home from their missions to heal. Okay, going on. So this is where they talk about the miracles, quote unquote. First, neither sister was stabbed anywhere. Their garments covered. It was not touched. One sister did have her garment shirt roll up in the night and she was stabbed in her side. Uh, there's way more horrible stuff um, in here. Um, Do you think it's possible that the the intruder just stabbed in places that the garment wasn't? Right. And so that's the thing that I was thinking was that, I mean, if it was just something that happened in the middle of the night, like as things do, as you know, that kind of says something, I guess, interesting about the protection or maybe about God being willing to protect, you know, she's sleeping, but she's wearing the garment, but because it rolled up a little, like that's an okay place. God was like, all right, she can keep that there, I guess. You know what I mean? I, I just, the wording of that, I was just, it was so weird just to be like, cause you still, I guess they still really wanted to have their cake and eat it too, where like yeah. the garment totally protected them, except for, except for where it didn't, but it was cause it was rolled up. So it was okay. It, was, it wasn't cause it was the garment that wasn't protective. Just what an odd, and the whole, there was like more that was also really awful with that kind of reasoning. But anyway, there's a fig leaf for you. That's a great example. And it also plays into this idea, which is current in the LDS church, that we're talking about physical protection being provided by the garment. And that's just a few years ago, 10 at the most, I think. So that is very much an ongoing belief in the church, and it's reflected in this story. And by the way, Bill, can you tell that story that you heard in a... a different yeah. context than Mormonism. Yeah. When you talked about this charred body, but except where the garments were and the garments were intact, it reminded me of a story where an old lady, her house caught on fire. It burned down. Woman had died in the fire and except that her Bible was in her uh, drawer by her bedside table and somehow the Bible was unburned. And so the Bible survived and it was a miracle and Christians were, um, 
celebrating how miraculous that was. In the meantime, the lady's house is gone. And she's gone. And she's gone. And uh, and yet it's held up as this miraculous story when it really serves no purpose whatsoever. Not a one. It's like that scene in the Woody Allen movie, uh, Love, what is it? War, I'm sorry, Love and War. I think it's a riff on uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace. Anyway, it's got Diane Keaton in it, but which movies didn't with Woody Allen. But he's a he's a soldier in the, um, oh, the uh, Russian, the Russian army, and they're fighting against Napoleon. And there's this huge battle where the Russians just get decimated. And there's bodies all over the field. And Woody Allen is standing there. He survives, right? And he's looking on at this carnage. And there's a, a Russian Orthodox priest, of course, standing next to him. And the Russian Orthodox priest is looking on at the carnage. And the priest says, well, it could have been worse. And Woody Allen looks at him and he says, yeah, it could have rained. <laughs> so it's this idea of wanting to find anything we can to make something fit our preconception. And this, I think, is what's going on with the idea about Willard Richards wearing his garment. Because we've got to try and make sense of this. Because rationally speaking, and I hate to bring rationality into it, but why is God limited in his ability to protect people by what article of clothing they're wearing? Why is he not protecting Joseph and Hiram for crying out loud? It's the prophet and the patriarch. They are more important in the eternal scheme. Apologies to John Taylor and Willard Richards. They are more important. Why is he not protecting them? He could if he wanted, presumably, but no, he's not going to. He's going to go with a guy wearing the long johns in the approved pattern. Yeah. So this doesn't really make any sense. So we've got to try and make some sense out of it. So fortunately, we've got Willard Richards who wore his long johns, didn't get injured, and we can focus there to talk about the protection afforded by garments in order to avoid the difficult question of why didn't God protect Joseph and Hiram as well? Yeah, and, and now we're going to go to a video by the church that talks about how um, that protection, spiritual protection, supernatural protection is no longer a view held by the church. And I just want to ask, in regards to that sister missionary story, uh, it would seem to me that it's odd that more intruders don't bring their own knife. Like to go into someone's home and hope you can find the kitchen in the dark and and pull someone else's It just seems like more intruders would have their own knife when they break in. It's it's just a that story doesn't make sense to me. And it's it happens in the movies all the time, right? People break in and like, oh, you get this scene just before where it shows the the counter on the kitchen and there's the knives all sitting there. And the intruder breaks in and grabs the person's knife. And I would think if I'm an intruder and I'm planning on hurting people, I would come with my own my own knife of choice. I have a long sharp knife immediately next to my my bedside, just uh if anybody wants to know that. Yeah. I've got guns, but yeah. I have a knife and People I know how to use incorrect. it. Incorrect. I'm sorry, there goes the video. David's telling us let's move along. So I'm sorry. Go ahead, refer to temple garments as magical or as magic underwear. These words are not only inaccurate, but also offensive to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There is nothing magical or mystical about temple garments. There's nothing magical or mystical about temple garments. They are just Ruh -ruh raggy. They are just underclothes. And if you'll pull up that LDS newsroom as well, Maven. And here's that one. 
So, so hear it again. Yeah. This is them officially saying it. Let me mute that. Some people incorrectly refer to the temple garments as magical or magic underwear. Same thing he said in the video. These are not only inaccurate, but also offensive to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There is nothing magical or mystical about temple garments, and church members ask for the same degree of respect and sensitivity that would be afforded to any other faith by people of goodwill. Mm. By the you way, know, that's a really interesting uh, trajectory, isn't it, that garments have gone through with regard to the protection they afford. They are no longer magical or mystical. They provide no supernatural protection. They're just pieces of clothes that remind us of our covenants. And they might protect us only from the standpoint that because they're a reminder, we may be reminded to stay out of places that are not safe. We might be reminded not to put ourselves in situations where we could get ourselves in moral trouble. Yeah, CTR ring could do that. Yeah, you're right. By the way, is um, this a bad time for me to mention the fact that I find saying the entire name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints over and over is offensive to me? <laughs> it's a waste of time and breath. <laughs> I know. So what do we do? Now that's offensive. Yeah. If Mormons is offensive and the whole name's offensive, where do we go from here? Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any solutions for you. All right. couple last things. Um, there was a time that we used to feel like we couldn't even talk about the garments. Like you could, they were kind of like secret, sacred, don't even mention them really. Um, I knew I was had a little bit of embarrassment as I would go to see the doctor and like, oh my goodness, the doctor's going to see me in my garments. And mm -hmm. I was kind of nervous about that interaction. But when the church put out this video, I remember a lot of commentary from members that, oh, like now we show them. Now we can show the garments. We can let people see what they are. We can talk about them openly. You almost always need the church to take that first step before any member feels safe doing the thing that's really close to these lines of super secret sacred stuff. And usually the church takes the first step after the internet has blown the lid off something. Yeah. Yeah. You amen. All right. A couple last things. I've got five cool facts and we'll do these one after the other. I'll shoot through them and then uh, we'll take some phone calls. So I'm going to put up the phone call banner. 662-667-6667, international callers and everybody else, you can all, yeah, remember that? Yeah. You all can do it some other way, but 662-6667, right? Let me just make sure I got that. I don't right. know. F-I-S-T is just so much easier Fist was easier. It was. Who came up it, with this idea? Yeah, I know. this. It was actually Maven. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. 662-MORMONS <laughs> or 662-667-6667. I like this better, Maven, by the way. So, Oops, I've said you. too much. This was the solution. All right. First one. We'll just put these up on the screen, Maven, one after the other. Uh, first one is Heber C. Kimball, 9th of February, 1862. If you've got that one, um, and if you got that section, if we can either zoom in or if you've got it, otherwise I can open it somewhere else. There it is. To return to the subject of the garments of the holy priesthood, I will say that the one which Jesus had on when he appeared to the prophet Joseph was neat and clean, and Peter had on the same kind, and he also had a key in his hand. So now we're being told that Jesus wore the sacred undergarment, and that Peter wore the sacred undergarment. And to suggest that, again, we don't really have any source other than uh, Hebrew C. Kimball saying so. And then we've got this thing, which is a, another one here. Uh, Elder Kimball showed the right fashion for a leaf, spoke of Elder Richards being protected at Carthage Jail, having on the robe, 
while Joseph and Hiram and Elder Taylor were shot to pieces, said the Twelve would have to leave shortly for a charge of treason would be brought against them for swearing us to avenge the blood of the anointed ones. It goes on here. George Miller said that when near the camp of General Hardin, he was shot at and the sentinel who was near him was killed, but he escaped unhurt having on his garment. Again, another miraculous story. He then mm-hmm. spoke of the design and purpose for which all the symbols in the garden were given. And Paul, sorry, etc. Paul said he bore in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was as plainly as he dare allude to these things in writing. But the marks Paul alluded to were just such as we now have on our garments. He spoke of the signs, tokens, and penalties. And did did Paul speak of the signs, tokens, and penalties? Well, there's a footnote there, but I'll have to tell you, I'm somewhat familiar with the Bible and the Pauline writings. I know where he says, I, I know that he says, but I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Yeah. I think everything else is rather foisted upon the passages. Yeah, this feels like a Texas sharpshooter, doesn't it? It sounds like a case of eisegesis. <laughs> eisegesis. <laughs> yeah, it feels like we're rewriting past history and writing into it modern perceptions. And uh, Well, right, and it was Heber C. Kimball who once... Here's the way the game is played, of course, is that the restoration has all sorts of interesting and unusual bits and pieces like garments. And because it's a restoration, then obviously it was had by the New Testament saints and the righteous had these. Therefore, it's our job to read it back into the New Testament. And even if the New Testament doesn't say anything about it, then we're going to go ahead and read it back into it. Even when Paul talks about bearing in his body. In his body, in his body, the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he's probably talking about uh, scars from being whipped. Okay, this is probably what he's talking about. I think the majority of scholars would back me on this one. I don't think there's a whole lot of non-LDS scholars who are going to say that this has to do with Jesus wearing uh, temple garments. Yeah, Dan Vogel, got my back, scars from persecution. Amen, baby. I almost said, yeah, baby, yeah, but that's been patented by somebody else. All right, anyway, so our five, our five or go ahead. You want to finish your thought? Oh, the other example of this is, of course, polygamy. And it's Heber C. Kimball, among others, who, because polygamy is part of the restoration, we read it back, or he read it back into the New Testament. And Jesus now is married to Mary and Martha in the New Testament. Mm. And mm. so, what is part of the restoration becomes part of the New Testament by default. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, five facts. So the first one was Hebrew C. Kimball talked about how Jesus and Peter both wore their garments. Second one is this William Clayton diary that Paul wore his garments as well. The third one I've got here is Mormon porn. So I know, right? Roll your eyes. But I lost three days researching this part of the of the outline. Um, I, I spent three days down the rabbit hole of Mormon porn. Only so, three, Bill? Only three. I, okay. and I may go back. I, there's still more research to be done. But um, Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> so what we end up you can't see anything rfm like it's you're just reading the article these aren't translucent or anything you're not this looking is, at the pictures no no i wasn't nope i didn't push play once <laughs> so okay. i've uh, never seen this by the way this yeah, yeah. is beyond the pale as far as i'm concerned a couple things one is that when when i never thought garments were sexy didn't but there's a whole genre of porn out there that plays on Mormon storylines and 
often has people in garments and uh, it seems to have a pretty solid niche in the ex-Mormon community, maybe even in the Mormon community. Um, so in some ways, like people are claiming back the sexiness of these things. Uh, so kind of interesting. Um, but I will say just a little side note, when my wife and I, when we shed our G's, we stopped wearing them and we just started sleeping naked together and, uh, our sex life had exponential improvement. Like it was the skin on skin instantaneously made, uh, a much more, um, exciting sex life in the real household. Just a little note. So, you know, maybe you think they're really fun to wear, but you know, just my two cents. I think maybe rubber garments are coming. Rubber garments. So yeah, yeah, maybe that's happening. Um, And then after this, the other thing I thought was really cool is you can actually still buy Mormon garments today outside of Mormonism. So there is some Asian website that um, may, even if you'll scroll down, some of these images are super um, sexual, but nothing, nothing shows. They don't show anything that shouldn't be in place, but they show the material they show people taking them off the garment of the holy priesthood. Is this so, going to get us a special rating on YouTube? I don't know. I don't think so. This is so if folks want to, there's there's another one of those Mormon things. Uh, but if folks want to, if you still want to own your own set of Mormon garments, you can buy them today without a temple recommend. You just go onto this Asian site and uh, and you can purchase LDS garments and it says you'll have them. Uh, looks like you'll have them in about eight weeks. So just an FYI. That soon. Yeah. And then my final. So those are my four facts. And I got one more to go. The hey, just let me know one, when I can look at the screen again. You can look at the screen again. Our, okay, our, thank you. Oh, no. So Maven just, I love it. <laughs> What's Maven doing? Yeah. So you put it back up there for a moment just to tease you. Um, <laughs> no Holy Ghost anymore, RFM. Oh, my gosh. Um, so those are the t- four of my five facts. The fifth one was the story that we talked about at the beginning. Um, I know this story existed. You had never heard of it, and I wanted to share it tonight, but I wanted to have a source for it, and I didn't. Here's mm. the story. Um, I got to remember here who the president of the church was. I think it's Heber J. Grant. Heber J. Grant becomes president of the church in the uh, early 1920s, and uh, Melvin J. Ballard becomes one of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, uh, uh, President or Elder Ballard's uh, grandfather. And... Um, they're at a church meeting where a discussion is taking place that the garments are being discussed as not being required outside the temple and that they'll only be required inside the temple. Melvin J. Ballard goes home that day and he tells his wife and informs her of this change that's about to take place. She goes and gets her friend and they go to the local department store and they buy tons of new underwear, panties, you know, delicates, and uh, bring them home, only to find out that Heber J. Grant took the weekend to think about it. And when he came back, he decided that that was not going to be one of the changes. Now, in 1924, they made several changes, but that was not one of them that they went ahead with. And I had told you guys the story, and you're, you didn't know the story, and I was trying to find a source. The only thing I knew it was in Boyd's... Um, I don't have it here handy, but Boyd's Papers, it's a, it's a section of stuff at the University of Utah... Uh, we had folks that went to the University of Utah and tried to find that document, couldn't. Um, I had uh, the backyard professor looking for it. 
Um, we had a couple people on a text thread that were looking for it. Maven was trying to do some research and locate it. Um, what we ended up finding is I, I messaged Devry Anderson because he had done a bunch of work in his development of the, the temple. Yep. Development of LDS temple worship. And that's where I thought I had remembered reading it. And my boss, Chris Bloxham, my friend, Chris Bloxham also knows this story. And we tried to find it. We couldn't. Uh, reached out to Devry and Devry messaged me back and he goes, yes, Bill, you've got the story right. Um, I know it's in Boyd's uh, work, but I don't have that here. Let me see if I can find it somewhere else. And we found at least a partial telling of the story in Leonard Arrington's works. And this is thanks to Devry Anderson. If you can put that one up on the screen, Maven. And if you, is that one cut out as well? Or is it just the whole thing? Perfect. Uh, Truman also mentioned that he had heard about the introduction of the Quorum of the Twelve in the late 20s or early 30s about eliminating the wearing of the temple garments outside the temple. It was actually the 20s because it was just before the 24 change. As I recall that he said that he got the story from the wife, Martha, of Melvin J. Ballard. I have heard a similar story from Alice Smith, Mrs. Winslow, Whitney Smith. The story is that the Quorum of the Twelve, after a long debate and prayerful consideration, finally decided in the late 20s or early 30s to not encourage the wearing of the temple garments except in the temple. The context in which I heard it was that the temple garments at the time were not suitable for wearing by the sisters, considering the fashions of the times and the wives of the 12 were overwhelmingly in favor of it. Now it leaves out the part, but these women thought the change was going to happen. He even says they decided it was going to happen. Um, and so these women, because they thought the change was final, they went out and bought new underwear. But here's what happened. After a decision had been reached, Joseph Fielding Smith, according to the story, felt disturbed about the decision and was impressed during the night to ask for another meeting of the 12 and to tell them that he was impressed that the decision was wrong. His influence was apparently sufficient that the decision was reversed, but because of the criticism of the matter of temple garments, active steps were made to design a garment which would be more appropriate for women to wear. And of course, uh, those have been made available in years since then. Again, that change happened in 1924. So these women had a bunch of new, you know, underwear from, uh, from the local department store and they never got to really wear them. It's a little sad. You're it's, it's muted RFM. That's a sad story. It is. It is. Unfortunately. But that's uh, that's what happened. But so the those real are... story here is all the research that has been going on trying to track this down. I think I'm the only person associated with post-Mormonism who was not involved in trying <laughs> to track down this story. Yeah, there was. By the way, thank you to everybody who tried to find this. It was um, I really wanted to make sure that I had my facts straight when I told it. And I felt like we got enough information back that it was safe to go forward with the story. You don't think that the person who was so active in trying to find this and did so much work would mind your mentioning her name, do you? Um, I don't know that, but I would assume not if you want to. Well, I'll let you. No, 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 please. Well, uh, Martine. Yeah. yeah. Derek Smith. Yep. Yep. And uh, we're in a text thread with, uh, you know, at various times with various participants and listeners and followers of the program, people who've been on the show. And uh, it's really cool when sometimes in these discussions, people go above and beyond trying to help us out. So, yeah, love it. Thank you. Thank you. Those are my five cool stories that I, I found on all this research and kind of tried to figure out uh, little connections with the garment. 
But otherwise, that's all I've got. Anything else from you and your notes that you wanted to talk about tonight? Yes, there was that massive thing that had to do with biblical scholarship going from the book of Revelation, chapter 11, cross-referencing with Ezekiel and Zechariah, which we're going to skip. Okay, good. <laughs> so with that, we'll try to take a few phone calls. How about that? Okay, that sounds much more fun. Awesome. This first one is Liz. Liz, you are on Mormonism Live. Do I have your name right? Hello? Questions only get more difficult. Yeah, yeah. If you're there, I can't hear you. I'm going to try something. Oop, let's try. Liz, are you there? Dang. Give me just a second, Liz. I'm going to try to disconnect for just a moment, and then we'll reconnect back up. I'm really sorry about that. What could go wrong? What could go wrong when you do a live show with live phone calls? And disconnect and try and reconnect. Yeah, it could. You, you never know. It just... Uh... Perhaps I should sing a little song. Uh, Liz, are you there? <laughs> the late, great Sam Cooke. Hello. Go ahead, Hello. Liz. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, hi, this is Kyle. Kyle, that's not the name that's on the screen. Go ahead, my friend. Um, hey, I uh, appreciate the show, and I wanted to share an experience I had as a middle schooler with my very TBM parents. There was a news story about the magical underwear. And at the dinner table, my parents made it very clear how we, as good Mormons, were re to, to respond to friends who might bring this up to us in middle school. Mm. So we were instructed by my parents, if we were ever asked, hey, do your parents wear the magic underwear? We were supposed to, with a large degree of snark and sarcasm, reply, yeah, my parents wore underwear. Yours don't. What's wrong with you? And Zing. if I reflect on that as a post-Mormon, I'm like, is there any, when criticized or attacked or asked to defend a position, oftentimes they just don't run how dare you ask me that? Deflect, get defensive, don't answer the question. And I was literally taught how to talk about garments that way as a child. So there you go. Thank you, Kyle. I don't know if that would have been an effective response to me because my parents were famous for going commando. Ooh. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't grow up in your household, my friend. <laughs> oh, it was a thrill a minute, believe me. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And everybody Kyle, thank donate you. I not smugly thing. I am a monthly small donor. Encourage everybody to do the same. Thanks, guys. Perfect. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kyle. I appreciate it. Bill, what have you done with Liz? I don't know what happened there, but that that said the person's name was Liz, but that's not who we talked to. So now that's we're going to try. Worried about when you said I'm going to disconnect and then reconnect with you. The disconnected part, I believed you on. I never left that phone call, and it that's who that's the name it was assigned to. It so. Hmm. Uh, caller, what's your name? Colby Reddit. Colby, go ahead with uh, your comments tonight. You're on Mormonism Live, my friend. Well, hey, guys. Thank you so much for the show. Um, one of the thoughts I had as you talked about, you know, the stories of garments being magic, protecting people from harm, is for me, it really connects back to Joseph and, and the early saints' magical worldview. 
I think Mormonism stuck in this place where it can't make up its mind whether things are magic or aren't magic. And the temple really revolves around all of this. A lot of times when I talk to even nuanced members, friends, and family who are still in, they tell me that like both the garments and the endowment aren't meant to be taken literally. And I just don't believe that's the case. And I think the reason is it all relates back to Joseph's treasure digging and his magic worldview. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, Colby, I think that's a great, great uh, comment. And we also know, well, first off, that uh, a garment that gives protection or anything that gives some kind of supernatural protection is usually classified under the heading of talisman, right? That's what a talisman is. It's an object that gives supernatural protection, usually against supernatural things. But Joseph Smith also was quite, uh, well, famous now, thanks to D. Michael Quinn and others, known for carrying a different kind of talisman, a coin, a Jupiter talisman with him as well. Yeah. Are you still there, Colby? No, I hung up with him since he seemed like he was finished with his comment. But yes. Okay, well, thanks Sorry. for the, the comment, Colby. Yeah, we've got talismans. We've got all sorts of things going on. And, you know, I've got a feeling, I'm just saying, I've got a feeling that what has happened in Mormonism to go from this magic worldview through this process of 200 years, which isn't that long when we're talking about the vast expanse of history. But in 200 years, going from magic to mundane, and I just came up with that. I think I'm going to patent that myself. From magic to mundane is maybe a similar thing that might have happened with Christianity in its first 200 years as well, not to mention 2,000 years. It went from magic to mundane. And the only thing left... Well, I can't say for all of Christianity. The primary thing that's left that is magical or supernatural in Christianity revolves around the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus has special powers. It can wash people clean of sin. And as we know from watching the last episode of Under the Banner of Heaven last week, this idea of power in the blood to cleanse things is not restricted to Christianity 2,000 years ago. It can even appear in Mormonism as recently as 1984. Mm. Yeah, and so you wonder how much more mundane Mormonism will be in another 100 years. Like, will prophets even be even thought of in, the, in our culture as prophets? Well, I don't know about our culture, but what typically happens in religious movements is they go through this pattern where they go from the, the miraculous, the supernatural, and magic, I don't want to use that in a pejorative way, but from, from magic to this kind of mundane thing. And then what happens is that people realize that this has happened, that things were different in the beginning, that they were more supernatural, there's more revelation, there's more God interaction with things that were going on. And typically what happens is that they, they then leave the now mundane church and go and create a restorationist movement themselves, which tries to recapture the magic that was had at the inception of the religious movement. <clears throat> Snuffer. <clears throat> yeah. Well, yeah, I think Denver Snuffer's um, movement, if I can call it that, is a reflection of that idea. And um, I'm not saying that's why he's trying to do it or why people who are following him are doing it, but I think it's safe to say, and I think that Denver would agree with me, that this is 
a movement that was precipitated by the fact that the leaders of the church today don't even claim to have the kind of revelatory experiences that Joseph Smith claimed to have. Yeah. It's, it's one thing to claim to have them and not have them. They're not even claiming it anymore. Correct. Yep. There are two callers left. We'll try to get through these really quick. It sounds like maybe this is Jane. Jane, is that your name? Yeah. Hey, it's Jane from 21st Century Saints here. Perfect. Jane, how are you? <laughs> I'm awesome. Well, no, I have COVID. So I oh, no. am super sorry if I start coughing and spluttering, but I had some big feelings about this episode. Um, so I wanted to just make a couple of couple of points. So the first thing is, I think it's really important we keep in mind the terminology when talking about garments, um, that we're authorised to wear them. So it's almost like you're being given permission to wear them. Um, it's really interesting that it's not specifically a covenant, but, you know, I think we could have fun with that language. Um, you guys mentioned you seemed uh, to be having a bit of discussion about bleached garments. So I don't know if you guys are aware, but garments are made from bleached fabric. They're actually bleached white. And I think it ties in with the scripture about being washed white in the blood of the lamb. But anyway, your actual garments are made from material that is not originally white. Mm. Um the, right and Jane, the next Jane thing is um Jane, can yeah. you hear me over there? I sure can. All the way across the pond. All the way over. <laughs> that that was one of the things that the argument was about about garments that Bill talked about a couple of quotes was the idea that they should not be bleached, at least back around the turn of the last century, right? Unbleached, Bill? yeah. Unbleached wool is what the original yeah. pattern was. Yeah, it's totally fascinating uh, to see these conflicts. And you know, I, I don't know if the audience are aware, but I'm I'm an active member who just loves the show, um, and I think this is such an important discussion. To when we talk about changes or adjustments to the to the garment, it's actually pretty common, especially when there are medical conditions that require you to facilitate that. And quite often, you're directed to counsel with a Relief Society president. Um, the initial image that you guys put up had, if you have a look at that very first image, the woman's garment sort of the bottom half went to just under her chest and the, the top half went right down past the hips and it's just very, very impractical. When we talk about the um, STI issues, I mean, that is the tip, a very mild tip of the iceberg. Women have actually been seriously medically damaged on their relationships with their husbands, with their own bodies, with... Um, all sorts of things uh, relating to trauma from things like vaginitis. The church knows about these things and still we have this responsibility to wear them. Um, a couple of comments are talking about the TMI thing when, uh, Bill, you were talking about removing the garments and just being in your skin with your vice. Awesome. Can we have more conversations like that? Because this is how people really live in their garments. 
sex happens, people so good shout bill for speaking up about it. And the final thing that I wanted to say that I just think is really important that you guys talked about how the church at the moment seems to have a focus where you don't really have to wear them the way that people would have traditionally said. So I would respectfully suggest kind of BS from a TikTok generation. You'll see women, you'll see, you know, young guys like the Midnight Mormons who will happily prance around without wearing them, knowing that their bishops are probably not going to call them in and chew them out for it. Some ordinary uh, person who's going for a temple recommends, if you admit you're not wearing them all the time, then that's going to be an issue. So I do think there is a privilege and social capital thing going on there too. And that was all I wanted to share. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Jane. I think it was a great point. Oh, you're muted again, Arkham. I was being effusive with my thankfulness to Jane. And thanks for staying up so late to watch the show. Yeah. And, and I'll just add... I hope I don't come across the wrong way. I'm completely in favor that, look, these things were never magical. These things are certainly causing health issues with uh, the female segment of membership. And they get in the way of lots of things, whether it be intimacy or it, it just shouldn't be this hardline signal that I'm a good Mormon because I wear my garments all the time. My issue is that the church early on in its history set them up as unalterable and set them up as having supernatural protective power. And that little bit by little bit over time, that is being reduced and washed away um, to the point where they are today essentially just, just a reminder of covenants we make in the temple. And you may wear them whenever you like, just put them on once in a while. And that seems to be the church's approach. Yeah, I think, their most, I think their most important function nowadays is as a sign of righteousness. Yeah. And Still a costly signal. Am I the only person who's ever heard of a garment check that girls do on guys? Mm, yeah. I was thinking more of the thigh, but yeah. yeah, same idea. Yeah, it it is a signal of who's a good Mormon and who's not, although they are watering that down and that's going to be reduced over time. But right. who knows? Who knows? You know, David Bednar could come back into leadership and we could do it all over again. Um, we've gone way long tonight. The, caller, what's the name? Bella. Bella, I don't mean to be rude, but if you could Bella. be quick hey. and we'll we'll take your comment, please. Yes, I'll be really quick. I have a couple of questions for you guys. And uh um uh then I'll just hang up and maybe you can answer me. So we're talking about garments and my question is what do you think? What's your opinion? Will we like in the in the eternity? Uh, will we wear the garments or do Mormons believe that? Because we know that Joseph Smith, when he saw Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, I mean, they were not wearing the full one piece garment. Like, no, according was, to Heber C. Kimball, Jesus uh, was. Moroni's breast was open. Really? Yeah. Right. But that's Mar because Moroni's his garment was, was yeah, well, the robe. But, but, no garment underneath. But when they, yeah. when they, the, the the very first pattern for the garment wasn't it like until the the, the the bottom until like the ankle and then even at the collar and all that so I don't know I don't know uh, but my question is that do you think it's it's an eternal thing and if it is do you think 
uh, women will have maternity garments because heavenly mothers, you know, that's all we'll have. Be pregnant, pushing we'll out babies have to all the be time. maternity garments. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so anyway. We'll take your questions off the air. Uh, I'll hang up. I'll let you answer. Um, good to talk to you guys, Bill, yeah. RFM, Maven. Uh, you're wonderful. Talk yeah. to you later. Bye. Thank you so much, Bella. My, my view is that they are eternal, but in heaven, in the celestial kingdom, there will be a special modification. There will be flaps to allow for breastfeeding because of the millions and billions of children that will need nourishment. Yeah. And in the lower two kingdoms where I'll be, you won't have to worry about that, but I'll have a TK smoothie anyway. So even if we did have them, we'd have to have another adjustment anyway. So yeah. How are you going to be going to the bathroom anyway? I, I'm not. I'm just TK smoothied over. Everybody's like completely spherical after a period of time in the lower kingdoms. Yeah, no progress. That'll be the end of me in the, yeah, the end of my no, progression. No progress, no egress. No egress. Anything else from you, my friend? No, no. Apparently all my jokes are like zooming off. They're not landing I don't, tonight. So I, don't I think know. we better just, yeah, uh, just, well, that one went the way of Cole Porter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, whoever Cole Porter is. All right, have a great night, everybody. And RFM, thank you so much. Maven, thank you behind the scenes. And for everybody who helped me track down that story, thank you so much. Uh, have a great night.